Fandom University. Every other week, we deep dive into the topics we love and obsess over. Comics, novels, movies, sci-fi, and video games receive the elevated discourse they deserve. With your overworked TAs, Sean and Sergio. Hello, all you bizarros and elementals out there. Welcome to the latest episode of Fandom University. My name is Sergio. Mine is Sean. We are continuing our Grant Morrison mainstream era arc. This is episode two. And boy, howdy, do we have a humdinger, gee, golly, whiz, fantastic episode. That's uh, that's meta humor, by the way, because we'll be discussing All-Star Superman, which is very much a, a throwback to like the, the, the Silver Age era of comics. Yes. Yeah. So um, if you got the joke without us having to explain it, you're part of the club. And if you didn't get the joke, I don't blame you because it wasn't a very good one. <laughs> uh, and also welcome to the show. Thank hello, you. Hello. Yes. <laughs> this, is, this is exactly the kind of uh, on brand humor you'll get from Fandom University from a couple of guys nearing 40s, one of which is a father of three. Yeah, sort of like the the era of comics where your Lois Lane will have her own book, but it'll be which is like okay, cool, like a, a female protagonist, you know. Uh, but yet it's called like Lois Lane, Superman's girlfriend, Superman's girlfriend, comma Lois Lane, I think. Oh, just, just like Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, but that's yeah. still at least like he's his friend, but girlfriend is just like she's his arm candy. I like guess. that's that's what you're known as, not. You know, Pulitzer Prize winning Prize. reporter Lois Lane <laughs> right. or, you know, just, you know, just human being who has Tough worth. As nails. Yeah. No, no, just just human being who has worth and value Lois Lane. <laughs> For existing. Yeah. Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. Um, somehow. And we'll get into we'll get into it in, once once we uh, actually get into it uh, and discussing all star Superman. But somehow Grant Morrison makes it work. All-Star is one of Morrison's signature works. We're actually talking about, I mean, I, I think every work we're discussing on this show is signature, but we're discussing two of the, the landmarks, I guess, uh, which is hit their most well-known Superman story, as well as their longest running uh, creator-owned book. Yeah, exactly. The second half of this episode. We'll be discussing the Invisibles, which, like Sean said, is is probably Morrison's, um, you know, like uh, his magnum opus, as we I described it in the last episode. It's it's kind of what uh, Morrison started at that age where you're kind of like that sort of creative age that, like you know, synapses are firing on all cylinders, and and you haven't quite got it figured out. And so it's it's kind of fun seeing that journey because there's some stuff in the series that does not work. <laughs> uh, and but, you know, there's so much of it that does. But so it's just sort of that um, just sort of seeing them uh, like, you know, like do it in like as a it's hard for me to explain. Like, you know, you you read his you read their stuff now. And it's almost like seeing like it's like it's like seeing a master at work, someone mm-hmm. someone who has uh, like uh, a firm grasp 
and a master's touch on the medium. Whereas, you know, at the beginning of the invisibles, you know, Morrison can still, can still misstep. And there, there are, there are several missteps in the series. Um, And it's kind of fun to see, see them figure it out along the way. Yeah. And it's, um, my opinion, you know, which you may not share is that even when they're failing, it's really interesting. To, exactly. To watch. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, their failures are more interesting than a lot of uh, worse writers, best stuff. You know, it was kind of my feeling. Um, like I'd rather watch Morrison fail than X. I'm not going to badmouth anybody. <laughs> uh, you know, their, their signature Superman story against Morrison's worst Superman story is still to me at least, but you know, we've already established I'm sort of a a stan is that what the kids call it that you are a stan you are a grant morrison stan uh you, i'm a simp for grant morrison you simp you simp for morrison that's not bad everyone everyone needs that i'm for me it's taylor swift you know i'd say exactly. you know uh, as much as grant morrison is a master of the comic book medium taylor swift is a master of the pop song medium and that's, i, I, I agree with that i stand behind that statement and i will fist fight anyone and <laughs> A grocery store parking lot who would say otherwise, but only grocery store parking lot. So um, don't don't approach him in like a mall parking lot or a spaghetti warehouse parking lot. Definitely because... not a spaghetti warehouse parking lot because I'd be too full to fight. <laughs> I'm not All trying those to carbs weighing you down. I'm not trying to do any sort of quick sudden movements after a, after a visit to the spaghetti warehouse. Um, but if you're not interested in fighting me over Taylor Swift, but are interested in winning free stuff, listen to the next few minutes of the show. Uh, we are giving away a couple of really cool things, one of which is uh, Grant Morrison's uh, autobiography slash memoir slash history of superheroes called Super Gods. We'll be giving away a copy of that in paperback. We'll also be giving away a copy of Bear and Dave McKean's uh, seminal Batman original graphic novel, Batman Arkham Asylum. What the winner will receive depends entirely on them. There is a, there's a version, there's a paperback version that came out last year that uh, they that the winner could get uh, immediately upon winning. Or there is a hardcover edition coming out in just a couple months in October that the winner could opt to wait for and get. You could win either one of those prizes. It's very easy to enter to win. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter. We are at Fandom U Podcast. And then once you're following us, that's step one. Step two is to use the hashtag Fandom U Podcast. And step three is to cross your fingers and hope that your name gets pulled when all is said and done after the Grant Morrison mainstream era arc is over. That could be you. It could, could be, be you. talking about you right now and you don't even know it yet. There's some time weirdness going on here, which is very Morrison-esque. Like, think about that. We're getting meta with the show in a way that Morrison might appreciate. Or just be like, yeah, I did that 20 years ago. Great. Like, yeah, I, had nice. that, I, had that, I had that idea in 1994. That's <laughs> nice. That's clever, you, you kids. Rubs us both on our bald heads and moves on. <laughs> Good hairstyle, by the way. Walks off. <laughs> But yeah, so like I said, we uh, will be doing that giveaway. Super easy to enter. And we will be drawing two winners at the end of the arc. And so let's go ahead and, and jump in. Uh, even though chronologically, All-Star Superman take it was what came out after The Invisibles, we'll, we're going to jump into that first. 
it's very much in uh, like a throwback, uh, an uh, ode, a uh, uh, kiss, a love letter, a Valentine to Silver Age Superman. Um, and and when we we jokingly kind of discussed the uh, you know how kind of outdated a lot of those a lot of a lot of that stuff was, but a lot yeah. of that, a lot of that stuff is. Yeah, those things haven't suddenly come back into fashion. Uh, so they're, they remain out of fashion. And yet somehow Grant Morrison makes that sort of gee golly, gee whiz, a, a aesthetic work. And, yeah. and yeah. this felt like, like it could have, I mean, obviously like, you know, like spoiler alert for a 15 year comic book, uh, Superman dies at the end. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 open ended, um, and uh, but it starts and it's it's pretty clever the way they set up Superman's you know impending death is they uh, essentially supercharge him with uh, with solar energy. Like, I mean, what right. what what happens when you overcharge a battery? Like, it can explode, and that's ex- pretty much what's what's going on with Superman. And this yeah, is he- all this is all the machinations of Lex Luthor. Yeah, it's um there's this great description he says it's like he can see it like fireworks beneath his skin is like something like something's popping inside um his white blood cells or something i can't remember exactly but um because they or because eventually the kandorians go into his bloodstream to try to stop it and that doesn't work out for him um spoiler alert for i guess like issue nine maybe issue nine uh, we're yeah we're spoiling the whole thing it's 50 yeah, years yeah, old yeah. come on come on guys yeah. But um, yeah, you're right. It that's the that is the setup, the impetus for what's going on, uh, for or, or for the every sort of the the through line of the arc is we're kind of in the last year of Superman's life, um, and and, uh, and all the things that he wants to accomplish, all the things that he wants to you know put to rest, all the things that he wants to have closure on. Like he reveals his his identity to Lois. They kiss on the moon. He gives her superpowers. This 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 serum that gives a person superpowers for twenty four hours, and so she flies around with them. They kiss on the moon, which is I mean, I mean it's uh, I mean I can't I can't let my wife read it because she's like you never took me to the moon. Kiss me there. All you do is take me to Spaghetti Warehouse. (laughs) Getting fights in the parking lot that you always lose. This episode brought to you by Spaghetti Warehouse. <laughs> oh, if, do we need to get a sponsorship for sure? But All Star Superman is is a lot of fun to read. It's um, yeah, I, I I can't. I think you described it perfectly when you said it was a love letter, like a Valentine, to not only the the Silver Age Superman, but just Superman in general, like what he what he means to people, not only to like what he means to like the in universe. To uh, his friends and family. But what he means to the reader, you know, and, and even explicitly, Grant Morrison even explicitly states that, you know, in prose, like he's an ideal. He's what people, you know, look up to, to model in their beha- their own behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it It's interesting because it deals with him as symbol, but also humanizes him uh, in some really interesting ways. So it's, it's doing something old and new at the same time, which is, I think, the genius of Morrison's best superhero work is a way that it it adheres to what they would refer to as first principles, 
but also bring something entirely new to the mix that makes it feel fresh and not just recycled like, oh, here's a Superman story your dad would have enjoyed. It's like, here's one you can enjoy that your dad might also have enjoyed, you know, as a, as a, as a youth. Um, so it, it, it was, it's interesting in the late nineties, apparently Morrison and Mark Wade, another great writer who's written for both of the big two. Um, but at the time was one of DC's heavy hitters were asked to submit a proposal for what to do with the Superman books. Like I think there were four monthly Superman books at that point and they weren't doing great. And uh, since Superman had died and returned, like the sales had kind of been in a slump ever since. And even me, I was a Superman fan and I like tried to keep up with the books. It felt like a chore at that point. Uh, you know, for, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. You had action comics, you had this, you know, the self-titled Superman, you had man of steel and you had adventures of Superman. So you've got four monthly books. So you got four Superman stories that need to be told, or at least, you know, one story that needs to be stretched out over four titles. And I just, you know, I can understand DC's, you know, let's milk this for all it's worth. You know, it's such, it's, our flagship brand. Right. But from a creative standpoint, you know, there's something's got to give. And so, like you said, so he uh, dies, which is, you know, which, I mean, we can do an entire arc on the, the death and return of Superman. Well, no, the, the death and of the comic book industry, <laughs> like, yeah, the, the speculator industry and the, yeah, the, the bubble. Uh, that popped after after Superman uh, after he died because it was it was huge it was it was they covered it on CNN for goodness sakes a comic book release but yeah and so then he returns the reign of the Superman and that goes on for about six months but yeah like after the sort of shine wears off you know the 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 sales start to dwindle and that step in Grant Morrison and Mark Wade with a way to sort of shake up the shake up the creatively shake up Superman sort of like John Byrne did in 1985. Yeah. And so they came up with this proposal, which was alternately titled, like there are a couple different titles for it. One was Superman beyond the other was like Superman 2000 to kind of give you an idea of the time when this was taking place. Um, I may be misremembering or somebody can write in and let us know. Apparently the person who asked them to come up with the, proposal didn't tell the Superman editors that that it was coming so when it showed up it kind of caused a a bit of a ruckus in the DC offices um and for that reason for political reasons I think it got put to bed at that point um and that was when Morrison quit DC and went to Marvel for a little while well yeah I mean like they're approached with this opportunity to do something that as someone who has read super gods and has followed their career can kind of tell is probably something that they've wanted to do their, their entire, you know, career. Uh, yeah. career. Uh, and then just to have the rug pulled out from under you. Yeah. I could, and then not even, and we'll, we'll get more into this when we discuss invisibles, but sort of the idea that DC's parent company, Warner brothers is stealing completely like, you know, completely stealing ideas from your work and then 
making using those ideas in a huge blockbuster movie with no credit whatsoever uh yeah that, i mean that's that's gotta hit that's gotta uh, that hit anybody a little bit raw and so yeah let's let's go ahead and jump ship and do something else for a while and but you know as we all know that those bridges were mended and, and morrison went back to dc where yeah. he's been ever since where they've been ever since where they've been ever since um so there's there's an interesting story in Super Gods when I think it's when Wade and Morrison are starting to talk about they're at some con and they're starting to talk about what would they would do with Superman and they're just walking around it may have been at San Diego or something um, and they you know it's it's a con so there are people walking around in costume and this guy walks by and apparently what was like the best Superman cosplay either of them had ever seen like looked better than anything up to that point that they'd seen in a movie anything like like the guy and the guy like had the physique for it he had the perfect look it wasn't like if I dressed like Superman and walked around in the skin tight suit it was it was you know an actual uh exemplar of the human form Morrison describes it in their book as sort of a visitation kind of with tongue-in-cheek like I know a visitation when I see one and they actually stopped the guy and started asking him questions and he started answering them in universe as if he were really Superman. And he sat on this bench and propped up one knee against his chest and let the other kind of dangle off the bench. And that's where you get the cover for All-Star Superman number one, which is that great shot of Superman sitting on a cloud in a pose that we'd never really seen him in before. I've never seen him in before that, that, that like, it's always your standard hero poses, your standard like Messiah poses, your standard savior poses, uh, very dynamic, very, you know, um, strong. Godlike Olympian. Yeah. And this pose, he seems um, almost, it's almost childlike. Like there's a, there's an innocence and a vulnerability to it. A whimsy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sweetness to it um, that, I think is something that a lot of the 90s Superman stuff missed because the 90s were a pretty dark time, especially the early to mid 90s were a pretty dark time in superhero comics. You know, it's all, it's sort of the, the post uh, Miller post more effect of like a lot of other writers trying out the sort of gritty, dark uh, revisionist take on superheroes. Oh yeah. I mean, like they, they hit it big with Watchmen and with, Dark Knight Returns and with Batman Year One and stuff like that. And just sort of society in general just sort of took this, um, not like really like darker term, but just more gritty. And so you see, I mean, like, you know, the, you see like, you know, with grunge, you know, like in, and uh, with that aesthetic, it's a lot just dirtier and grimier. And so comics sort of followed suit, you know, followed, you know, like, oh, hey, like the, in the 80s, like this is what was working for them. Let's go ahead and continue that trend. And like you said, it's uh, it works for a lot. It works for a lot of comics. Um, you know, it can work for X-Men. It, obviously. Batman. Yeah, definitely. Doesn't really work for Superman. And so and that's and Grant Morrison understands that better than anyone. You know, you can't you can't make Superman dark and, and think that you're going to be able to get a good story out of it. Superman at, at his core is a good person. And Jimmy Olsen says that there's an issue where there's some black kryptonite 
and they're unsure of its effects on on Superman. And then, but then it turns him evil essentially. And Olsen realizes that it it turns him into the opposite of what Superman is. So it turns him into a bully. It turns him into a, a, a bad guy. And that's, you know, that's exactly what Superman isn't. He's not a bully. He's a guy who stands up to bullies. He's not a bad guy. He's the guy who's going to help, you know, a little girl get a get her cat down from a tree. Right. He, I mean, there's that, my favorite scene in the whole book is actually when he stops that woman from stepping off the side of a building and tells her, you matter, you know, like, because he hurt, when he's stopping that train, he overhears her doctor trying to get to her. And then shows up. So like that to me shows more understanding of Superman than almost any other Superman comic I've ever read. I was like, that's it. That's a Superman moment. Dude, I legit, like, I didn't tear up, but I think you could kind of tell like, you know, when you're, when something could almost make you cry, you kind of like get that heaviness in your eyeballs. I I legit got that because yeah, you've got this young woman uh, standing on the edge of a building and and superman just says like hey like you know you, you matter and she comes down and he hugs her and that's exactly what superman is superman doesn't have you know this angst that that batman has superman doesn't have this um this moral ambiguity that the x-men have you know the angst like the any any sort of uh tension in a superman book comes from him feeling he he isn't doing enough like he wants to be everything to everybody and he wants to help as he wants he wants to help everybody not just as many people as he can he wishes he could help everybody and that's where the that's where the, a lot of tension is in a superman book comes comes from as opposed to like being dark and brooding and that just that it doesn't it doesn't fit into into the character at all yeah, the, the fantasy of Superman is supposed to be what if somebody who was who had power was actually good? And I understand why it's important to deconstruct that archetype in a post-Watergate world and all of that. Um, like, I, I get it, and I think that's a smart thing to do, but I also think that the core of Superman, it's the same thing with Captain America, is like, what if somebody with the heart of the little guy was given the big guy, you know? strength essentially and power and um used it to help rather than to help themselves uh to help other people um well i mean for so yeah for so long for so long we've seen people with power abuse it and we've seen um you know good people go bad for any number of reasons you know um whether it be you know uh, power corrupting them whether it be you know some bad breaks and the things that they prop themselves up on are taken away. But, you know, like you said, Superman is supposed to be the story of the good guy who does good things and never wavers from it. Yeah. And one of the things Morrison said that they like about superhero comics is that they're not real. That's part of what makes them so special is that they aren't a, a reflection. You know, you, and look, I'm not going to argue that Alan Moore's work isn't great because it is, but, um, but that sort of optimism, that, that restorative approach to superheroes and Superman, like it, Superman doesn't have to necessarily interact with the real world on the real world's level. He doesn't have to get dragged down. Like part of the fun of Superman is that he is, he's imaginary, he's fictional, he's 
a fantasy um and not i mean it's good to interrogate but also like to understand at the end of the day it's still a fantasy it's not you're not putting a real person on trial you know um uh, well speaking you know it's funny you mentioned trial because i was just about to bring up atticus finch and how for decades this fictional character was like held up by lawyers like that is the ideal like atticus right. finch is a man of principle who will stand up for what's right regardless of what is being thrown at him and that was sort of you know he was sort of the um he was at the top of the mount for that for that profession and then ghost set a watchman is released and that um and that character is wildly different and and there was backlash against that there was like i and in fact i to kill a mockingbird is one of my favorite books of all time and i never read I guess the the sequel, the prequel sequel, whatever whatever Ghost at a Watchman is, I never read it because I didn't want it ruined for me, and I didn't want that character to be any different than what I remember remember him to be. Yeah, and for me that that's that's a lot like Superman. You know, Superman's that ideal. You know, I was we we're I texted you earlier in the week discussing this, and you know, I'm a huge wrestling fan, and so I equated Superman with John Cena because John Cena is the perennial good guy. And he has been a good guy for just about, you know, he's, he kind of started off as a bad guy, but his charisma and his, his personality won the fans over. And for both, so for most of his career, he's been that sort of, you know, he's been the Superman of the WWE company. He's been the Superman of the WWE. And that's kind of a role that Hulk Hogan fit into in the 80s. And then he famously, you know, turned bad uh, mid 90s, again, to go back into like the, that sort of that you know energy that was going around at that time, and because and so that was and so for Hogan it was, for Hogan it was one of those things that well what else can we do with the character the characters become drab stale you've been doing the same thing you know say your prayers eat your vitamins uh, this is the only this is the only w- way to develop the character and the only thing that's going to to get people talking about it again so he goes bad whereas. You know, Cena, he has stated he will never do that because the character, the character he portrays on screen is too important to him. And, you know, he doesn't want, you know, the kids who grew up watching him or still watch him to to lose that. You know, he doesn't want them to to. He, he, he doesn't want to complicate those feelings. He doesn't want to muddy the waters. Exactly. And. And so that same idea, I think, is, you know, can be transferred over to Superman. That, that, and that idea of there can be a good person who you can trust not to go bad, and who will stick up for the little guy, and will always do the right thing, and, you know, has all has the power to do whatever they want, and what they choose and what they want to do is to help people. And I feel that that's something that every person, I don't, I don't know if they can relate to it, but it's something that they, I mean, at least I hope that there are people like that in the world. Yeah, I hope so too, especially it's, you know, it's been a dark few years uh, <laughs> here, here on planet earth. And so this rereading this book, it's the first time I've reread it in nearly a decade, I think. Um yeah, since 2010, so 11 years ago. Um, 
was really, it was a nice pick me up, a nice reminder of like an exemplar of the human spirit, like the, you know, that deliberately, you know, there's that great line that they even stole for Man of Steel uh, where uh, Superman is like, he's already died and he's in like Krypton heaven or something with uh, Jor-El. And, you know, it talks about they will stumble, they will fall behind, but someday they will join you in the sun. You know, you'll be a beacon. Um, That was why I got so excited about the first Man of Steel trailer was they used that line from All-Star Superman. And I was like, oh my God, they're using the best Superman book ever as the basis for this new movie. This is going to be amazing. And uh, the movie, you know, wasn't really, they didn't really stick with that hopeful tone. They went a little bit darker. Um, I mean, as as Zack Snyder is, you know, want to do. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was, it wasn't, as much as I love Henry Cavill as Superman, that wasn't really my, the version of Superman I was hoping to see on screen. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, But uh, the the book itself is, it's interesting um, because each issue, I mean, there is an overarching plot and it does pay off, but it also, and there are little bits that are threaded throughout, like Lois not believing that Superman and Clark are the same person after he reveals his identity. She's still like, gives him shit about it because after years of trying to prove it once he admits it like she knows something's up and he you know the thing that's up is that he's dying um but you know he doesn't want to tell anybody that yet um so each you know and and then we get into superman's 12 labors and not each issue is a labor i don't think i think a couple of them are brushed over in the last couple of issues they're mentioned in passing but um it, it creates this wonderful spine for the story is like the last year, the, the prophesied 12 great labors. And so each issue is its own thing. Like it, you could in theory, read one of these independent of the other 11 and still enjoy it as a comic book. And I think that's something that Morrison has tried to do a lot throughout their career, especially in superhero books, X-Men is where they went away from it, where they really went for those much more soap operatic. And it makes sense for X-Men, right? Because that's what X-Men is. It's a, it's a soap opera. It's a big family, yeah. Yeah. Um, but a lot of their work on JLA or uh, later on in Batman, which maybe we'll get to in a future arc, they went out of their way to recompress comic book storytelling. They talk about, you know, the, the, the classic example Morrison uses is the 15 page, the first Spider-Man story. It's 15 pages and an amazing fantasy 15. I think it's 15, maybe it's 12 pages, but, um, you know, and then in 2000 or 1999, when all-star, not all-star, when ultimate Spider-Man starts, and it's a great book. I love ultimate Spider-Man, but it takes six issues to tell that same story. Seven, actually, I think. Um, like Uncle Ben doesn't die till issue four. Um, and, you know, that's sort of Bendis' style is a little more decompressed, a little more, you know, talky. Morrison sort of recompacts the, the drama in these books. That was one of the things I was really noticing. And one of the things that I think disappointed me the first time I read it, because I was hoping for something that was going to be much more of a through line. And instead, it's very episodic. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, but I, I feel like it pays off in a big way at the end. It's so good that it it sort of sneaks the like the climax. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a you know it's a twelve issue maxi series, so you know that th- th- there will be an end to it. But 
everything sort of comes to a head right when it's supposed to. And it doesn't seem rushed, but at the same time, like it's, it, and it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem rushed and it makes complete sense too. And so, but yet it doesn't feel like you've, it's, you've been like, it's, it doesn't feel like Matt, <clears throat> it doesn't feel like Morrison has been hammering you over the head with it. Yeah. It's, you, you, you talked about their later work and feeling like you're watching a master at work. And I would, I would argue that this book is definitely an example of that. Like a master of the medium who knows how to do what they're doing, working with their favorite collaborator, Frank Quitely, um, whose art on this book is amazing. Fantastic. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. I mean, it's, and it, I think his artwork fits the, this character better than it fit X-Men. I still like the artwork in X-Men a whole lot, but there's, I mean, there's just some, like, there's just some artists that just, you know, they, they're better, I feel better suited for, for, you know, they have, their styles are better suited for certain books, you know? Yeah, like, and I, Quitely's got a little bit more of a cartoonish look, and this is sort of a, I don't want to say it's a cartoony book, but it is harkening back to the Silver Age, so that sort of, it's like a, a grotier or maybe more grotesque version of the Silver Age style, would you say? I think it's a, it's a more modern take on that Silver Age style for sure. And it just, it, it fits better than I feel um, his work on X-Men fit that, fit that book. It, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to, maybe someday we'll, we'll figure out why, but I, I would agree with you. It's, I mean, I, I liked the, the work on X-Men, but there's something about the work on Superman that, that seems to fit better. And, and maybe it's because it's a quirkier book. It also, it also might have to do with, um, which is the time that he was able to work on it. That's true. This book didn't come out in a year. Like, I think there were delays. It, it, it took a while to get all 12 issues, but their dedication to letting Morrison and Quietly finish it together meant that they have this book they can sell forever now, you know, that's, that I would say is a uh, masterwork of the genre, you know, so I, I think they made the right call by not, you know, rushing it by being like, yeah, you know, it sucks. We wanted this out now, but like in 10 years, you know, people are still going to be talking about this. So win-win. No. Yeah. And I feel that, you know, if you want to uh, introduce Superman to somebody, I think this, this might be, like, even though like sort of at the end he dies, I think this is the quintessential Superman story. It does just about everything that a Superman story should do. Can you think of a Superman story you like more? I know I'm the bigger fan, but I can't think of one. I mean, there are others that I like a lot, but none that like I would immediately cotton to as like, oh, this, you know, this is the Superman story over Superman, you know, all-star Superman. Uh, I would say like anything that comes a close second, what might be what's so funny about truth, justice in the American way. That's a good one. However, a lot of those same ideas you know, are the ideas that Morrison explores in All-Star Superman, like just the, that sort of pushback against the, the dark, you know, brooding, gritty uh, aesthetic and, you know, and celebrating the, like you said, the whimsy, the, the gee golly uh, heroics that is, that, that is Superman. Yeah, I can't, I mean, there, there are others, like I'd say Mark Wade's Birthright's a really great Superman story. Um, and I, I haven't read all of Jeff Johns's run, but apparently he, 
he did some really good work, but, um, and John Burns, Man of Steel miniseries is really good too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, like it's got this, uh, uh, it's got this great line where Superman is foiling a bank robbery. And so they, you know, the bank robbers got their guns. He's like, Hey, don't come near. And Superman's like, come on, man. Well, you think I'm hiding any weapons in this thing? <laughs> it's a good bit. Yeah. That. And I remember thinking like, you know, Superman should be charming like that, you know? Um, and maybe that's because I, I grew up watching the, the Richard Donner, Christopher Reeve Superman movies. And I mean, that first, that Superman, the movie is as, you know, I wish they could, I wish they could remake that, like just the same movie, but with updated graphics to appeal to, you know, younger kids today, because unfortunately that's kind of what they, they go for. They, you know, they, you can hand a kid two different games, one that's like really fantastic. It might be, you know, 10 years old and then something that's brand new and really isn't that great. And they'll take, you know, sometimes more often than not, they'll take the brand new game because of the better graphics, just because it looks better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we were first getting into comics, like as a as a sort of, you know, as friends, when we were making regular trips to the comic store together in high school, I remember one of the first things I bought uh, on one of our outings was The Dark Knight Returns. And that I actually sort of had to battle against myself because I looked at the art and this is the book was about 10 years old at this point. It came out in the mid 80s. This is the mid 90s. And I was like, this looks old. Like this yeah. doesn't, th- this is ugly. <laughs> you know, Batman looks fat. Like what is going on here? <laughs> um, and I still bought it and I read it and I was like, yeah, this is good. But like, I found the artwork actively unpleasant to look at. And now, you know, I look at it and I'm like, no, it's great. But like when, when we were kids, I wanted the slicker paper, the, the, the advanced coloring techniques we were starting to get in the Marvel and DC yeah. books. Um, and, you know, most of the books, from then I'm not rereading, but I still reread the dark Knight returns every now and then, you know? So I also had that same problem with the Sandman actually. Like that's why it took me so long to read the first volume of Sandman was it looked so eighties. And now I, I love that artwork. And, uh, you know, although I think it got better as the series went on, but that first volume was kind of a, a tough sell for me as a kid, because it just didn't look the way I thought it looked old. Essentially, It, it, It didn't look the way you felt comic books should look like. And, you know, that's, and that's a nice segue into the invisibles because a lot of that artwork like has that eighties look to it has that sort of, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe except that to say like, it looks eighties, it looks like an eighties comic book. And so if you know what eighties comic books look like, you know, exactly what we're talking about, which brings us to the second part of our episode. We're going to discuss Grant Morrison's the invisibles. Hard to really put this like hard to write like a like a one sentence two sentence blurb to describe the entire series. Yeah, yeah, and I I would argue that that's one of the things I love about it. Um, no, yeah, it, it's hard to define. It it changes from issue to issue sometimes. What it is? No, yeah, like drastically. That's in some points, like you know, almost um, like there's a cohesive story. Oh, cohesive, I guess could be arguable. <laughs> there's a storyline. <laughs> Um, there's a through line yeah there's, yeah there's a through line like from issue one through issue 59 right and so right. it's um the story of this group the invisibles who have um essentially realized that um reality is manufactured in some sort of in some sense and uh try to prevent the the end of the world armageddon 
or or bring it about depending on uh your point of view right like it 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 definitely that's why it's hard to sum up because sometimes they seem convinced that both uh the good guys and bad guys are actually on the same side and don't know it and other times they seem to have it pretty clear cut would you disagree with no absolutely yeah absolutely like early on for sure like it's pretty like the the good guys and the bad guys it's it's pretty binary like you could definitely tell who's who and then but it definitely gets muddied as the series progresses there's so many like double triple quadruple agents like going on i i guess the best way to describe the invisibles is philosophical sprawling chaotic fun hipster hipster fun. yeah hipster hipster british like late 90s early aughts british fun yeah like it it's fascinating how it's very much it's it seems timeless it's one of those books it's one of those works that i definitely feel i will enjoy more on a second read through yeah agreed and it's weird to to like have that idea in my head while I'm reading this, like I'm, I'm enjoying this, but I feel like I would enjoy it a second time through, like after I let it kind of percolate for a few months or even a few years. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, cause often, you know, often you, 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 uh, you, you digest something and you have, you feel whatever you feel for it. And then you come to it later by happenstance or, or in earnest. Mm -hmm. And you, you come to realize like, wow, I actually enjoyed that the second time through, which you, um, we'll be discussing multiversity in the next episode. And that's, that's actually a point you made about that series. Um, but it's, it's hard to, or it's, it's, it's strange to come to that conclusion while you're in the middle of the first, you know, of the first reading. Well, I think, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that, but I, I think also at this point in my years of reading Morrison, um, I've sort of come to expect it, especially from like latter day or truly off the uh, chain Grant Morrison, you know, JLA and X-Men are pretty on the chain, JLA even more so than X-Men. Um, and then as Morrison got more uh, cachet in the industry and was kind of allowed to get weirder and weirder, uh, their work became weirder and weirder. And The Invisibles is sort of concurrent with JLA and the beginning of X-Men hit their run on X-Men, but it sort of is the, I guess, the signal bearer of like Morrison's truest voice, I guess. No, it's definitely, it's creator owned, wholly designed by their mind, right? Obviously the characters in JLA have all this history and to a certain extent, they have to adhere to it and I have to adhere to the tropes and the, and the dynamics of those characters, of Superman, of Batman, of Wonder Woman. Same with X-Men. Yeah. And even though X-Men got a little bit more weird as than, you know, the next men usually gets, you know, <laughs> like saying like, something. I mean, you know, X-Men by and large, you know, it's, it's, I mean, they're, they're superhero, like big money, like flagship title comic books, you know, even at their best, they're still, they still got to hold back something, you know, they still have to be able to appeal to the general consumer, right? Right. So they can't get super weird, super avant-garde. It can't be like an artist's true vision in a book like that. Whereas The Invisibles is absolutely Grant Morrison's vision. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating to, I mean, this is a fucking book that's got, you know, uh, 120 Days of Sodom, like, (laughs) you know, like storyline in it, I guess, fucking bananas. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still, God, I, I think part of, so to prepare for the show, we've had to read a lot in a very short period of time. And I would say that to some degree has um, plays into what you were saying about enjoying, knowing you'll enjoy something more the second time around, because there was a deadline on this. So it's like, I knew I had to read X number of issues a day to finish on time. And as much as I was enjoying it, there were moments where I was like, I don't understand what I just read, but I didn't go back because it was like, I still have X number of issues. I don't have the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and that's part of the fun of doing this show is sort of, it's almost, you know, it's almost like a dare you make with yourself of like, can I read 80 Grant Morrison comics in in two weeks? Well, I mean, it's it's like we're cramming for a a test. Yeah, exactly. Like a, um, but it's your favorite sub or my favorite subject anyway. Um, Yeah, there are things that are in the book that I'm still not sure how they fit together, but like, from moment to moment, I was having such a good time reading it that I didn't mind not always understanding. Like, I felt like I understood well enough. It, it was towards the end in the, in the very last run of issues, I felt like I was close to losing my grip on everything, but I felt like it kind of came together in the end, more or less in a way that felt like, okay, I kind of understand. It's almost like, and I, I, inviting slings and arrows with this comparison but the first time you watch godfather 2 like there's so many cross plots going on in that movie it's kind of hard to tell who's motivated by what mm-hmm. uh much more so than the first movie and i'd, I'd say that this kind of has that same thing where there are so many characters that cross purposes who aren't always being honest with each other um and the world itself is kind of uncertain that you're not really sure what you're looking at. And I think that's part of what makes it such a rich work though, because it, it's so open to interpretation. It, it's sort of a malleable work, but it, it it's visionary, but also there's enough space between sort of like David Lynch, right? Like there's, there's clearly a vision at work, but the vision doesn't explain everything or offer all the answers. And it's up to the audience to sort of complete the work themselves and um you know i it's not the kind of art i want to consume every single day but it probably is as i get older my very favorite kind of work and this isn't like you bring up david lynch and you know i'm a fan like what i've seen i've enjoyed you know i've either on a scale either like enjoyed very much or at least appreciated for what it was trying to do or you know what it was right um, that, but someone like David Lynch, someone like Grant Morrison, especially in, in, in this context of the invisibles, you know, you can't, I mean, it's, it'd be hard pressed for me to say that Grant Morrison knew exactly like every plot line, every storyline, every character before they started the first issue. Yeah. You know, I don't believe that Grant Morrison sat down. It's like, I'm going to write the 60 issue comic and, and this is what's going to happen. And then like, all right, let's start issue one. <laughs> um, and so, and so you say it's very malleable, like that's, and maybe like how some stuff fits in and how, how it does it. Like there might be instances of, of them taking a swing at something and missing. Yeah, it's true. It can be difficult to try to parse out wh- where, what fits in at what point. And cause there's, there's an issue. Um, I believe it's issue 10 that I that we both feel is a wild miss. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's 
so issue 10 it it deals with with racism and i mean it's i i mean knowing grant morrison's work and as a result like more or less what their personal politics probably are you can easily assume it's it's coming from uh from a good place you know it's 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 definitely you know that the the racist corporate white men get theirs in the end like brutally so yeah but the entire exercise is just kind of is super fucking cringe and yes. like and like i don't know that a that a white person like grant morrison should be writing that sort of story the way that it's presented yeah i would i would agree with that and i i think that there are um there are similar tone deaf things that you'll see in like alan moore's work like there's a uh, a similar issue of swamp thing where like the 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 dead slaves on a plantation rise from the dead to kill white people or say it's been a while but um where like the 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 heart is clearly in the right place like trying to right a wrong but also like that's not really your voice to use at that point um the sort of criticism that quentin tarantino receives is very much what's at play here well i yeah see this is a, a quagmire to get into uh, for me, just because I don't feel qualified to say one way or another. I don't, I honestly don't know. And as an artist who struggles with the idea of what I am allowed to say and what I'm not allowed to say, like not in terms of, I want to say hateful things, but like in terms of what's my story to tell, what what is appropriate and what is inappropriate for me to take on as a point of view or whatever. And I don't, know the answer to it i do know that reading issue 10 of the invisibles made me very uncomfortable no yeah hard same hard same and um i would say that like our politics pretty you know closely aligned to morrison's and you know and personally i don't know what their opinion of that issue is now there are certain aspects you know it being over 20 years old now right at its you know at its on at its onset almost 25 now uh And, you know, there, it's, there are some, like I stated previously, there are some things that are very much of its time. Like even a character like, uh, like Lord Fanny, that's very progressive as far as the portrayal of transgender people in comic books, like the word tranny is used. Granted, Lord Fanny uses it to describe herself, but even then, like, you know, um, that term has, is out of vogue in, in modern sensibilities. At the time, it was the appropriate word to use um, maybe the way it was being used in the comic is a little more um, risque, probably, um, because calling it tranny instead of transvestite. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things where, like, I really wish that it wasn't just a couple of cis dudes trying to sort this out in this episode. This is where it gets really tricky for for me as a um, as a fan and a reader and somebody who wants to do and say the right things. And just like, you know, with, with the Jim Crow, like that's the character's name that's at the, um, that is the center point of issue 10. And just like, like that, you know, like, you know, Morrison's heart's in the right place. Like, obviously, like, they introduce this character and they're, uh, and Lord Fanny is, is layered. And, Very. and for the most part, I mean, is just treated as a member of the Invisibles. Like the fact that they are transgender isn't made a point like every single time. Like, oh, we've got this transgender member of the group. 
you know, it comes up like one of my favorite parts actually is um, toward the beginning uh, when they're having a, uh, a fight and the villain whose name escapes me now. Oh, the demon. In the, yeah, the, in the like windmill. the faceless demon in the windmill <laughs> yeah. kind of like mockingly asks Lord Fanny, like, what are you going to do? Like stab me with your heel. And that's exactly what she does. <laughs> like, stabs that fucker right in the eye with her heel. Um, yep. You know, you've got King Mob, like he's pretty much the first one you see like in the comic book you know he's um he kind of looks like grant morrison themselves you know so i don't know if there's a bit of a like projection onto that which i could definitely see i mean king mob is uh, a person who is very talented but also there's there's some self-doubt there yeah actually um in super gods morrison I think that title, the title of the chapter where they talk about the invisibles, or at least the genesis of the invisibles is called like my life as a superhero. And basically was about sort of what they called, uh, they came up with the term fiction suit for uh, when they appeared in Animal Man and actually talked to Buddy Baker. And so like basically sort of created um, another fiction suit. Um, Although they also described themselves as, you know, that there's a lot of them in all of those characters. King Mob is the one that's easiest to see because of the visual resemblance, but also Lord Fanny, because I think Morrison did spend some time at least presenting female when they went out, like went clubbing and stuff. I don't know if they they lived that way all the time or if that was only, you know, uh, I, I don't remember. Um, in that 2020 interview with Mondo 2000, they, let me find the quote. They said that uh, they had, been non-binary cross-dressing genderqueer since I was 10 years old so Morrison in that book which is another reason uh, everyone should enter the giveaway because this book is just so bonkers and fun and crazy talks about how certain things that they would write into the book would sort of find a way to manifest in their lives, you know, like visions of scorpion gods, you know, who want to turn you into an assassin or something, you know, or King Mob getting that, um, that fake version of uh, necrotizing fasciitis, which is actually, you know, just the key 23. At the same time, Morrison figured out that they were actually very deathly ill. Um, the moment where Christ appears to um, Jack and says, I'm not the God of your fathers. I am the hidden stone that breaks all hearts. According to Morrison is something that they saw in a delirium while they were in the hospital, like almost dying. So like, there's definitely it, it in many ways, I would say is their most personal work. Like it, it brings us closest to who Morrison at least wants to present as to the world, like what they see of themselves, you know, or, or want the world to see of themselves or what they'd like to see of themselves. And that might explain why it can seem so disjointed. This was a time when Morrison is, you know, he's starting the book in their early to mid thirties, just now getting, you know, some headway in the, in the field that, that they want to spend their career, like that, that, that they've been trying to make a career in the, almost their entire lives, right? You've got cult favorites like Animal Man and Doom Patrol, and that helps get them the gig for Arkham Asylum, which, like we discussed in the last episode, sold like gangbusters, you know, was, and you said in Super Gods, he, they mentioned using that money and, and being able to do all the things that they've always wanted to do, like travel the world and, 
and try psychedelics and, you know, essentially <laughs> like, you know, live the life that they've wanted to live. It also gives them some artistic cachet, right? Like, you know, I'm the motherfucker who wrote Arkham Asylum, you know, like uh, <laughs> sort of, you know, let me do my thing. And which is, you know, I would say partly why they're given the opportunity to write The Invisibles and, you know, for DC Vertigo. And The Invisible has always been, for me, um, sort of one of the one of the uh, one of the titles that gives DC Vertigo their reputation, mm-hmm. like you know Neil Gaiman's The Sandman or Garth right. Ennis's Preacher. Why the Last Man? Yeah, Brian yeah. K. Vaughn's Why the Last Man. You know, these are those are the cornerstones. Yeah, of the the Vertigo Empire. And I feel The Invisibles is the of those books. I feel the Invisibles is the, I mean, as I mean, you could argue how commercial a DC Vertigo book can be, but Why the Last Man is about to become a TV show for Hulu. Right. Neil Gaiman's The Sandman has become a TV show for Netflix. Preacher became a TV show for AMC. The closest the Invisibles got to becoming, you know, a movie or TV show was getting ripped off by The Matrix. <laughs> like ripped off hard they took the ideas but put this like cyberpunk techno rave aesthetic over it you know gone are like the quirky i don't know like the quirky morrisonisms of a king mob or a lord fanny or even a jack frost and instead you've got the sleek cool trinity and neo and morpheus yeah, yeah. The, I mean, there's still some of that that fetish gear in clubs, but it, it's less ragged around the edges. It's less diverse looking. Like the Invisibles are kind of a weird group when you get them all together. They don't look like a team. They look like a group of individuals, whereas Morpheus, Trinity, and Neo look like they're in the same yeah. band, you know? Um, That's a really succinct way to put it. But no, there's, there's so much in The Matrix that was... and. You know, there are arguments like um, like the Hunger Games, right? You know, people uh, read the Hunger Games and say like, wow, this is a lot like Battle Royale, this Japanese uh, movie manga from uh, the late 90s uh, that, or late, from the early 2000s. That's, that's strange or, right? you know, there are instances like that in media, but this for sure, absolutely 100% is a is a theft <laughs> like like they were <laughs> passing around copies of the invisibles on the set of the matrix were they really i yeah. didn't know that oh damn the invisibles like the idea is is i mean it's essentially you know the, it's the same as the matrix like you discover that reality as we know it is is false you know there's a scene where the the main hero jack frost jumps off a building and isn't killed uh, he doesn't bounce right. off the sidewalk like it's like, you know, silly putty or anything, but the comparison is obvious. Yeah, there's um, machine-like overlords secretly running the world. It's all about gnosis and waking up, like waking up to what you're actually seeing, open your eyes. Martial arts plays a big part in Jack's training. Jack is sort of the Neo in this uh, equation. Like it's, there's a lot there, like, and even some of the look, I mean, King Mob would fit right in, I think, with, you know, on the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar, at least when they're in the Matrix Matrix itself. Um, 
it's, if I were Morrison, I would have been furious. And I, I, I'm sure they probably were. Um, I, I don't know if you did any reading about it. I know that in the, the documentary Talking with Gods, Morrison talks about being angry at first, but then sort of being like, no, this is what you wanted, right? You wanted these ideas to permeate the culture to actually, uh, to grow and sort of in, you know, language is a virus, right? And like infect and like spread. And the matrix was a vehicle that sort of did some of that work. Um, and that was sort of how they settled it with themselves, but, or at least how they, they, they talked about it in that interview. But if it were, my magnum opus that had been ripped off by a major Hollywood motion picture, I, you would never hear the end of it. <laughs> like it's all I would talk about for the rest of my life, unless there was some kind of settlement and who knows, maybe there was that we don't know about, but um, it's interesting that Morrison sort of left DC proper not long after the matrix hit and their Superman proposal got turned down. Well, I mean, it, it could stand to reason that the, you know, the frustration of having so many of your ideas, so many of your core ideas being lifted for a movie that is, you know, being produced by the same parent company that also owns the comic book company that's publishing your work. And like you said, the Superman 2000 proposal, basically Morrison did it for nothing. You know, somebody asked them to come up with this and was sort of got out, out of their lane in doing so. And, you know, DC's like, oh, we, we never really, that was never really something that we, we wanted. So thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, why would you do this? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it could sound reason that that would be enough for someone to say like, you know what, let's, let's see what's going on on the other side of the fence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm glad that whatever brought them back to DC brought them back uh, because I think they did a lot of their best as much as I love X-Men you know as a DC kid I think Morrison um, did a lot of their best superhero stuff after X-Men coming back and just getting really weird with it as uh, Danny DeVito would say and it's always sunny Um, so but but yeah I I, I hope there was some sort of settlement or some sort of peace was come to, especially when you take into account that the Wachowskis themselves um, are trans. And, you know, that book probably spoke to them quite a bit as well, even maybe more than they were. That they realized at the time. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I would hope that there would be a good relationship there now. I don't, I have no idea what, you know, but um I love the Wachowskis and I love Morrison, so I, I don't want to think about them not liking each other. Yeah, I like guess. it's like when like two people, yeah, like when two of your friends don't like each other, and you have to like look. You're I'm both in, I'm I'm inviting you both to my birthday party. Just don't don't be assholes to each other. Just be get a, just, just get, get along. along. Damn it. Um, but yeah, so if I mean, I guess that's um uh an easy way uh, a succinct way to describe. Like we started off this segment not really sure how to describe the invisibles. Um, But I guess uh, a way to do so would be, it's like the matrix except really fucking weird. And as a result, (laughs) like really fucking cool. Like, yeah, just like imagine like the matrix getting really weird with it. Yeah. 
<laughs> the matrix not for everybody the matrix only for like british hipsters in a way obviously not like not trying to be cool right or going for a very different version of cool um than than what you got um something that's a little rougher around the edges a little less uniform um and one of the things i love about the book i know you talked about how thing you know the disjointed nature of it and uh, I've been reading a book, which we'll be talking about hopefully in our next episode, so I won't talk about it too much here, but um, uh, it's called The British Invasion by Greg Carpenter. Um, it's a, it's a about, so we're, we're going to have Greg on the next episode, uh, but, you know, one of the things Carpenter talks about in the book is how Neil Gaiman actually didn't do a lot of plotting on Sandman, and which is crazy because when you read Sandman, it feels- Like a cohesive whole. Exactly. And, but it also feels kind of shaggy too. And I think that you can see that that's one of the things I love about comic books is that they can sort of be both like Sandman would kind of wander from these long arcs into short stories. And then some of them work better than others, but it, it all manages to come together in the end. And Morrison has always been wackier than Gaiman. I think Gaiman's more of a traditional storyteller in, in a lot of ways, although uh, non-traditional in others, but we'll get into that when we do a Neil Gaiman arc someday. I don't want to uh, blow my load on that. Like Neil Gaiman is, is like like that, um, it, like in theater arts, he's like the classically trained <laughs> yes. like actor. And like, you know, uh, and Grant Morrison seems to kind of like, you know, you know, like I'm just going to just going to feel it out and see, see what, right, see right. what comes. The, the wacky art school kid. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I think it being sort of shaggy is one of the things that I love about it and that I love about monthly comic books is that they do grow and change over time and things sometimes, you know, they not always for the best, you know, I mean, like we talked about how much we love Preacher, but there's one trade we both agree you could lift right out of the series and it wouldn't hurt the, the series at all. You know, so sometimes you get that, but I also love the idea that creators are kind of free to wander their own worlds and show us things that wouldn't easily fit into a TV show or a movie. Like they're taking advantage of what the monthly comic book can do, you know, like really changing up settings, characters, um, you know, setups, all of that stuff. Like it doesn't have to be uniform and Invisibles, I would say doesn't come together as precisely as Sandman, but I think that's I won't say it's of design, but I think it's indicative of the artists who make them. You know, Morrison is a self-professed chaos magician. So I think it makes sense that the Invisibles would sort of leave a kind of chaotic, uh, broken feeling in your head in a good way, not like in a, my world has been shattered in the worst way possible kind of way. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the, the best compliment I could offer the Invisibles is like now, like having read it, I hope to have the chance to revisit it in the future. You know, not anytime soon, but just like I said before, like let it percolate, sort of like let it simmer and, you know, I and digest other works, other works of Morrison's, other works that might be like adjacent to it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like the Sandman, like doing a reread of, of mm -hmm. Why the Last Man or even a preacher. Um, but like I said, it's uh, it's something that I definitely recommend it. I recommend it to anyone listening to this show. If you're listening to this show, if you're a fan of this show, then I would 
wager that you'd probably be a fan of the invisibles if you hadn't yes. read it yet right uh i would say don't read it the way we did and like we had <laughs> so we sort of had to cram it in like we're like you know like like we had a final to get ready for um definitely definitely enjoy it slowly like a fine steak yeah or good wine or something i mean that's how i enjoyed sandman and i think the experience was better for it it took me months to work my way through the 10 volumes and i think if i had the same opportunity with the invisibles um it would have been an even better ride even as much as i enjoyed it so i'm looking forward like you said to taking a slower stroll through it someday yeah because i mean there is definitely moments where like i was giddy with excitement reading the invisibles um uh but there are also sometimes like there are also moments where like I wasn't like you said, like I wasn't exactly sure what I had read, <laughs> but I like I, I didn't have the time to go back and reread um, or I didn't have the time to sort of like just let it like settle and like parse it out on my own. Yeah, it definitely seems to be the most personal for them. Yeah. Um, like I, I, I feel having coming to Invisibles a little bit later in my reading of Morrison, um, having stuck mostly to, you know, their, their mainstream DC and Marvel work. Um, after having read all of that, reading their book, seeing a documentary about them, like this book, all the main characters in this book feel like parts of Morrison sort of dealing with each other. You know, it's, it's almost like Morrison trying to figure out how to become an integrated whole person uh, in real time. <laughs> no, and that's, and yeah, that, that, that's what makes it so interesting and appealing to me. Um, whereas I don't, you know, I don't want to say that it's for higher work, but a lot of the stuff that they worked on, like JLA, X-Men, the characters aren't anything they created. You know, they didn't create Superman. They didn't create Batman. They didn't create Cyclops, Wolverine, Jean Grey, Emma Frost, all that. Uh, doesn't mean that they don't have something interesting to say with those characters. Conversely, these are in the Invisibles. These are characters that they created. It seems a little bit more personal. And as such, it, to me, that it's a little bit more interesting. Yes. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. As much as I love All-Star Superman, I am. Um, Invisibles feels like more of a meal. All-Star Superman's like a perfect dessert in a way, I guess. It's delicious. So two, two thumbs up from Fandom University. It's available in trade. You can find it pretty easily. But definitely, definitely read it slowly. Definitely enjoy it. You know, uh, an issue or two every few days or so. Ponder it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a, a work worth thinking about. You know, like you said, it. you feel it's Grant Morrison's most personal work, you know, and like having read it, uh, you know, I we had described it in the lead up to it, to this conversation as their magnum opus, right? And, but... It's, which gives it like the sort of like, you know, like sort of bombastic, like, you know, big feel, right? Right. But it's, it's actually much more personal and more intimate than that. Like it, there, it is, it is huge. Like I said, it's huge and sprawling and philosophical and, and it's, it's, it is a huge work. And at the same time, it's very much like one vision of one artist who obviously has a lot to say and sometimes doesn't know how to say it, but tries anyway. Yeah. And fuck, that's brave, man. That's fucking art, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah, I like I said, it. like I said, two thumbs up for me, man. I enjoyed the ride. Same. Hard same. Well, that's going to go ahead and just about wrap it up for this episode of Fandom University, the second episode of the Grant Morrison mainstream era arc. Before we let you fellow fleeting fanatics go, we want to once again uh, plug our giveaways for this arc. We are giving away a paperback copy of Grant Morrison's Super Gods, which is their memoir slash history of superheroes that Sean describes as a holy text. It's a memoir slash history. They describe how they work, but it, I, I wouldn't, I'd say it's more inspirational in terms of just the ideas it's presenting than in terms of like practical writing advice, if okay. that makes sense. Also, we'll be giving away a copy of Batman Arkham Asylum, either the recently released paperback version, which you, you would get immediately upon winning the contest were you to win, or you could get the soon to be released hardcover edition that comes out in October. It'd be the, it's a, it's winner's choice. Yeah. And you're, you want both of these books. I mean, they're, they're both, if you're listening to the show, you want both of these books, either for yourself or to give to someone else as an evangelical for Grant Morrison, spread the good word uh, like us. We'll be back in just a couple of short weeks to finish up the Grant Morrison mainstream era arc. We will be discussing Multiversity, their most recent Green Lantern run. And we'll also have an interview with Greg Carpenter, writer of The British Invasion. That's going to be a fun interview, getting to discuss, you know, uh, Morrison with someone who, I guess, you know, loves their work as, as definitely as much as you, maybe as much as you do. Maybe even more. Yeah. Somebody who has a lot more historical perspective and um, a scholarly approach to the material that I think is going to be really exciting to dig into. Right on. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Sergio. My name is Sean. Be kind to yourself and to others.